Hello, I'm Daniel Simpson, the host of Ancient Futures. And if you're hearing this, you're listening to a preview of an archived podcast. For the full conversation, go to ancientfutures.substack.com. The link is in the show notes and become a paid subscriber. Or you can also sign up for a free seven day trial with no obligation. If you already subscribe, however, you have access to everything via the website, um, where you can go to your account page to set up a feed to your favourite podcast app. Just follow the instructions at ancientfutures.substack.com forward slash account. Now, everything is free at the time of release, so it's also possible to subscribe without any charge to get the latest episodes direct to your inbox, along with other interviews and things that I write. All of that does take time to produce, though, so while it's a labour of love, subscriber donations do help make it sustainable. But if you're not in a position to pay, just send me a message and we'll work something out. For now, on with the preview. Hello and welcome to Ancient Futures, where we question if old ways were better while dreaming up new ones. And today, a different sort of podcast. No one's being interviewed exactly, um, although I do answer some questions at the end. Um, But before we get there, let's rewind. Last weekend, uh, I took part in a conference in Wales about the healing power of yoga and traditional medicine, um, from Indian Ayurveda to its Western equivalents. And I had the uh, rather dubious honour of speaking first, um, which meant uh, setting the scene with a very brief history of therapeutic yoga. Now, to keep that very simple, uh, the body used to be seen as an obstacle which had to be transcended for spiritual insight. So the way to be healed was to renounce the world. And thankfully, things have moved on a bit since then, um, as the talk explores. But uh, before we get to that, very quickly, um, I just wanted to let you know I will be away for a couple of weeks in July teaching in Norway, uh, among other places. Um, So there might be a podcast pause uh, or at least um, some revisiting of old conversations. And uh, also to let you know, I'm running a retreat in the UK at the end of August, which will be bringing yoga history and philosophy to life through a mixture of practice and discussions, a bit like the one you're about to hear. Um, Now, you can find out more about that and uh, my online courses at uh, danielsimpson.info. Or if you want to find out more about the podcast and perhaps make a donation to sustain it, you can do that at ancientfutures.substack.com. And you can also ask questions there, should this talk provoke any, as well as leave comments and share your thoughts. For now, though, without further ado, here's what I presented in Wales under the heading, The History of Yogic Healing. Thank you very much. Um, where to begin? Um, this is an enormous topic that I'm going to try and distill into you know, 45 minutes or so. I'll try and leave a bit of time for questions. Um, inevitably, I will scratch the surface. And uh, because it is my nature, I will try to be a little bit uh, pointy in some of the things I'm saying. Um, because it would be very easy to come here and say, isn't yoga lovely? Um, and uh, to, to say, uh, yeah, as um, we were you know, reminded in this morning's class, um, 
we could take a little bit of ease from this uh, practice out into the rest of our lives and uh, things will proceed much more harmoniously. Um, and I think we've all who've dabbled in a bit of yoga experienced some of that. Um, but let's put that aside for the next uh, half an hour or so at least before we come back um, to, to some of those thoughts. Because as we rewind the clock, it's not quite so simple. So when uh, we talk about yoga being something that can be healing, um, we are, I think, talking about relatively modern assumptions. And uh, if we look at some of the earlier phases of yoga history, um, conceptions of what might be healing uh, might sound rather jarring. So uh, a couple of book titles here to look at, uh, Yoga as Medicine uh, and Yoga, the Path to Holistic Health, both uh, nice uh, photo-rich coffee table publications from uh, the start of the millennium, and uh, they are speaking the language um, that we're familiar with, the idea that this practice is, uh, yeah, in some ways, uh, it's a prescription for health and healing, um, but also uh, perhaps even preventive medicine, something that uh, we can do in our lives to equip us to deal with the, the stresses that the world will throw at us. Um, and that's not how it was described in a lot of early yoga texts. Um, there are aspects of that that do transpose back onto the past, um, but the conception of the problem and the conception of the remedy is somewhat different. So uh, let's, let's go to perhaps the best-known text about yoga philosophy, uh, the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali. And uh, in that text, there is a rather bleak statement. Um, Everything is suffering, it says. Um, if you look at the world you know, with true discrimination, if you are a, a person possessed of viveka, um, you will be able to see very clearly that for lots of reasons that it goes on to enumerate, um, our condition here is pretty miserable. And uh, at the same time, the very next sutra, the, the 16th sutra of the second chapter, um, holds out the possibility of removing suffering. And... Uh, doesn't say much else. Um, it then goes on to explain the nature of uh, the, uh, the problem, um, which is you know, somewhat contrary to what most of us think of when we hear about yoga, because it says the problem is union, and uh, the practice that Patanjali is outlining is to disconnect us from the source of the problem in the form of union. Um, but it uh, doesn't really go into much detail. However, there are commentaries that accompany this uh, very uh, pithily worded little text, that have come down to us over the centuries. There's even one that belongs really with the sutras, certainly throughout the history of, of yoga in India. It's been seen as having equal authority. Uh, and that original commentary traditionally attributed to Vyasa, although some scholars today suggest the same author maybe wrote both, um, has a little footnote on this uh, everything is suffering bit. Um, and it says, well, actually, you know, there is the possibility of uh, dealing with this suffering. And... Uh, the methodology is compared to medicine. And uh, it's uh, very much the same framework that the Buddha presents in his Four Noble Truths. Um, there is this problem of suffering. This problem has a cause. Um, there is the possibility of removing this problem of suffering. And here is the methodology that will do it. Um, now, for the Buddha, that sounded uh, you know, a little bit more comprehensive in terms of an eightfold path that would lead you to nirvana. Um, what's described here is a little bit more um, basic, let's say. Uh, this philosophy of salvation, it says, has four parts. The first part, the problem, is a cycle of births. The source of suffering is yeah, the endless uh, problem of coming back, known as samsara. Um, 
There is a cause of that uh, in the form of action, karma, um, being involved with the world. Um, there is the possibility of freedom from this problem of karma, um, and the means to liberation is this disconnection that Patanjali describes. Um, basically, uh, removing oneself from the world, removing oneself from the sphere of activity, basically never do anything ever again and you won't have a problem. Um, that's the early philosophy of yoga. And uh, that's pretty consistent for a good thousand years in most texts we see, with really only one exception that I'll come back to in a moment. And uh, it's all about this cycle of suffering in the form of death and rebirth. Uh, the problem of samsara is addressed through practices such as yoga. And uh, they lead to this state, moksha, which comes from a verbal root, much, which means to release. So we are released from the problem of being alive, effectively. Um, life is the problem. Yoga is the solution. The transcendent is where we shall remain, perhaps in bliss, perhaps not, depending on the text that you read. But it sounds quite stark, um, because the problem was seen to be that way. Um, this, this was life's biggest crisis, the fact that it doesn't end. <laughs> it keeps going on again and again and again. So something needs to be done to unwind it. The problem is we act in the world. The actions have an impact on our minds. They condition us towards wanting stuff, either you know, more of the things we like or to avoid the things we don't like. So we carry on acting, trying to correct the balance, and this spins us forwards into the next lifetime. So you don't want any more of that. Never do anything again. Bingo. <laughs> you might think I'm exaggerating, but this is, this is how yoga is very clearly described, as renouncing the world. There's a description here from the Mahabharata, the great Indian epic on the left, um, of one who is engaged in yoga. Um, he is yukta, his mind is yoked, um, he is fully uh, under control. Um, his senses are disengaged from the outside world, doesn't hear, smell, taste or see. Notices no touch, nor does his mind form conceptions. Like a piece of wood, he does not desire anything. So he's dealt with the problem of desire that underpins the problem of action. Uh, if you don't want anything ever again, no problem. Fantastic. But uh, the solution is to sit like a stone, to become an inanimate object. And this metaphor is recurring. Uh, you find it much later, even when there are conceptions of being liberated in the body. It's still, you know, you are still like a stone. Um, even, as we'll see a bit later in medieval Hatha Yoga texts, the end proof that you've actually got somewhere is that you're basically dead to the world. And uh, the earliest description of yoga that we have from the Kata Upanishad, so, you know, well over 2,000 years ago, defines yoga as a state in which the senses and the mind are fully under control, reined in. Um, that eliminates distraction. Um, it also eliminates this problem of desiring stuff out there in the world. Now, of course, there are you know, other approaches to that, and as time goes by, the yoga tradition evolves slightly subtler approaches to the problem of suffering um, and therefore to the problem of desire. Um, and we're not all required to go and sit like a, a, a semi-naked dreadlocked sadhu in a cave for the next 30-odd years. Um, and if that was the case, 
probably none of us would have heard of yoga because it would be a very strange thing that was uh, yeah, not of a great deal of interest. And that's kind of how it was first encountered by Westerners when ancient Greeks invaded India and encountered some of these characters doing their stuff. Sort of went up to them, what, what are they doing? Let's find out why. You know? And there's a description of Alexander the Great encountering uh, half-naked ascetics doing difficult things to their bodies in the middle of the noonday sun in Punjab. Um, and yeah, he reports uh, reports back to, to Greece via the, the histories that some of his entourage composed, that these guys seemed to be onto something, but it was quite hard to figure out what it was, um, because they were basically punishing themselves, effectively, subjecting their bodies to intense discomfort. Because if the problem is desire, then the simplest solution is to make yourself do something very painful and ignore the fact that you want to stop doing it. And the classic example is to stick your arm in the air and never bring it down again. In fact, originally it was two arms. <laughs> Goodness knows how you feed yourself. You have to be totally dependent on somebody else. But have a go. Put your arm in the air. See how long it takes for the desire to bring it down to start kicking in. <laughs> and now imagine keeping it there for 40 years. Um, <laughs> You will soon train yourself to ignore the problem of desire. So early yoga was quite ascetic in that way. It was not concerned with improving the body, with feeling more comfortably embodied, with you know, the path to holistic health. Um, it was actually all about the body being a problem. Letting go of the body is the ultimate goal. In Patanjali's sutras, it says, you know, the sign that you're making progress with your niyama of shaucha, of purity, cleanliness, is that you have disgust for the body and uh, no desire for contact with any other bodies. And the footnote in the commentary explains that that's because you're getting ready to let go of your body. You become an ascetic, it says. You, you are no longer attached to your body. Well, of course, there were texts that did criticise this sort of arm-in-the-air carry-on, uh, one being the Bhagavad Gita, which has you know, a very different perspective on yoga, and it's quite unique in early yogic traditions um, in that it says many things that are contrary to everything that I've just said. It says action need not be a problem. You just need to desire nothing from your action. You invest all of your effort in doing the action, but derive none of the rewards. So that neutralises this problem of desire. Um, it also says it's impossible to do nothing. In fact, you know, you're acting whether you want to or not. So the only question is, are you acting in accordance with dharma? If you're doing that, then you have dealt with the problem of karma. You will be liberated nonetheless. And then it has these fairly choice lines for the characters who really went for it with the hardcore asceticism, saying people who do this are engaged in ferocious deeds not sanctioned by scripture. Um, and uh, Krishna is complaining at this point that since he is you know, manifest in all things, these ascetics are not only destroying their own bodies, they're basically attacking the deity. Um, and therefore, this is not to be encouraged. It's madness. It should be uh, channeled into much more productive activity. And uh, he suggests that uh, a more beneficial form of austerity would be to practice austerity of speech and say things that are loving, beneficial and wise. And uh, that would be a lot more useful than... Uh, withering your arm into nothingness. Um, so there are these sort of hints, and uh, there are also occasional suggestions that uh, there might be some side benefits to this yoga stuff. Um, another early text, the Shvetashvatara Upanishad, that uh, describes seated meditation, um, goes on to say, after some lines that are basically the same as you get in chapter 6 of the Bhagavad Gita, sitting up straight in a nice quiet place in nature, um, 
you will get some side benefits. Um, the body tempered by the fire of yoga, uh, fire tapas, really this intense burning uh, ascetic activity, uh, literally means heat, tapas, um, but those ascetic endeavors are known as tapasyas. They are cultivating inner heat, transforming the illusions that uh, get in the way of uh, seeing clearly through difficult physical activity. Um, and it says, well, if you temper your body with the fire of yoga, you will no longer experience sickness, old age, or suffering. Well, those are, yeah, I guess, traditionally the ways in which we're describing this problem of being embodied. Um, yeah, we can't get away from the fact that the body will decay and die, the Katha Upanishad explains. So um, better you don't identify with this body. Um, see yourself as the transcendent self, the Atman. Um, but here there's more. It doesn't just say disidentify from the body. It says in the process, your body will actually become healthy. Um, it will have a, a very sweet smell. It will also produce fewer waste products of the sort that Patanjali was saying we ought to be disgusted by because um, this little flesh suit that we inhabit is a you know, sack of pestilence that's always oozing out all this stuff. No amount of cleaning can stop it from doing that, therefore we should not be attached to it. But it says here that is a sign that yoga is working. So although we've got you know, a fairly grim-sounding early history to yoga in some ways, we've also got the signs of you know, something to do with embodiment, not necessarily being a problem. And uh, to cut a very long story short, I'm going to condense uh, you know, the entire history of yoga into 30 seconds of baffling timeline, um, in which uh, everything I've been talking about is largely confined to the top bar, asceticism, which uh, you know, has been there since the earliest days, uh, two and a half thousand plus years ago. We really don't know how old yoga is, but we can definitely say it's two and a half thousand years old. Um, and continues till today. You can go and find guys in India still holding their arms above their head <laughs> that have withered into you know, uh, the possibility of removing them from that position no longer being possible. Um, and at the same time, we've got these texts bubbling along the bottom. Um, the, uh, the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali, kind of disconnected from what it's describing in that it's a, you know, it's a theoretical summary of what yogis do and uh, how to go about deep meditation. It's not used by these ascetics. They just get on with what they're doing. They don't sit around having yoga study workshops. Um, so uh, there's also the philosophies that have influenced yoga texts, uh, particularly the Sankhya philosophy that is the, the bedrock of uh, the Yoga Sutra and also, to a certain extent, the Bhagavad Gita, um, and the Vedanta philosophy that comes out of the Upanishads. Um, these, these sort of trundle along completely detached from yoga practice, really, until um, certainly about a 1,000 years ago, and it's really only in the last few hundred years that all this stuff gets jumbled together. All those strands fuse into what we think of as modern yoga. Um, but it's the, the, the other two that I haven't talked about yet that are the most important. What we think of as yoga today um, is an embodied practice. Hatha yoga, medieval um, adaptation of some of these ideas about meditation um, so that the body could be harnessed in the process of cultivating these deeper states of insight. Um, and all of that has come from a different inspiration. That's really the impact of Tantra. And uh, the... Very simple ingredient, to sum it all up from uh, Gavin Flood's book title, The Tantric Body. <laughs> the, uh, the, the, the entirety of tantric tradition is about the harnessing of the power of the body and the possibility of the transformation of the body into a divine body. Um, so the body is not the enemy. The body is actually the means to yeah, achieving the highest potential goal. And that is different to what we encounter earlier. Um, 
And because of that influence, because of the fusing of some of this you know, ascetic, world-renouncing kind of uh, objective with this new you know, body-positive, let's say, approach to spiritual practice, um, there is the possibility of no longer regarding the body as something we have to get rid of or transcend, but it can be a tool. And that's exactly how it's described in these medieval Hatha Yoga texts. The best known, the Hatha Pradipika, um, we are roughly ooh, uh, 600 years ago or so, um, describing this yoga Hatha. Um, hatha in Sanskrit means force or violence. So um, it's a, a strong sounding word still, but it's, uh, it's not really that one should do violence to the body. In fact, it expressly says you shouldn't do that. Um, it's again critical of that sort of ascetic approach. It says instead you should use skill to harness power within the body. Something very forceful is awakened that will transform the body. Um, an upward momentum of energy is really the, the ultimate objective here, to you know, light yourself up like a Christmas tree, as in the picture, and awaken all these subtle channels. Um, and the first stage to doing that is to use physical positions, asanas. Now, this word asana um, is often misunderstood these days. It comes from a Sanskrit verbal root, as, which means to sit. And for Patanjali, the only asana was to sit, to meditate. And it's really in the you know, last thousand years that positions have been given the title asana that were not seated positions. The only alternative to sitting was this stuff until Hatha Yoga came along. <laughs> and uh, you know, the earliest postures we find described in texts are really hard. They're arm balances, mayurasana, kukutasana, not simple things, certainly not things that you could hold for 40 years. So there's a different objective, really. There's a transformation of the body. And it says here the asanas are the first step because they give us health. They make the body capable of withstanding some of the genuinely hardcore stuff that you subject it to in the later phases of Hatha Yoga practice. To do with manipulating the breath, to do with you know, mastering all sorts of uh, subtle forces within the body. Thanks for tuning in to this preview. Uh, to continue listening and to get access to all archived episodes along with other perks, visit ancientfutures.substack.com.